And, uh, yeah, it's one of the best Steelers ever. We're number 47. Next player I'll mention, number 47, also played defensive secondary. I know a lot of the rules used to stipulate what number you could wear by position. That rule has been abolished. So you might have similar positions in the football around these numbers. But uh, we'll keep continuing here. You might recognize John Lynch more as a San Francisco 49ers GM. Saw a bit of him over the weekend. We'll get more to him later, but... Man, damn good player on the field. He played at Stanford under coach Dennis Green, and he started as a backup quarterback but made the move to safety. He was drafted by the Florida Marlins. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of weird. He was going to go join his baseball career, but uh, new Stanford coach Dennis Green just left to take the Minnesota Vikings job, and Bill Walsh came in, some legend named Bill Walsh, and he's convinced him to play at Stanford a senior season, don't play baseball. Did a fantastic job, and that led to the Buccaneers drafting him in the 93 draft. Started on special teams, working his way into the lineup. Tony Dungy would become the coach of the Tampa Bay, and the rest was kind of history. Uh, he'd lose his job after getting injured to Todd Scott, but then Todd Scott would get hurt, and Lynch would grab that position and never let go out of it. Let, let go of it. Under Dungy and Monty Kiffin's defense, he'd become one of the best safeties in the game, making five Pro Bowls, two first-team All-Pros, second-team All-Pro. Big part of that Super Bowl 37 winning Bucks team, and when they just obliterated the Raiders in that one. After the 2003 season, they released Lynch, the Bucks did, as part of the salary cap move. It said he would even take a pay cut, but they were like, eh. So he ended up going to the Broncos, where he'd make another four Pro Bowls. You'd get super close to a Super Bowl in an AFC conference game, but they lose to the Patriots, as most did back then. But yeah, Lynch was a defensive captain with the Broncos. He was really good there. And uh, yeah, he wasn't getting a lot of playing time, asked to get released. He tried making with the Pats, didn't make it. He'd retire, and that was it. But man, he got inducted to the Tampa Bay Bucks Ring of Honor, Broncos Ring of Honor, and he got inducted in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And he was a freaking pretty good broadcaster before going into the executive, winning executive of the year in 2019. One of the best safeties of his generation who could cause fumbles, get picks, and he's a hell of a team maker as a GM as well. We'll stick with safeties, you might see here. And uh, Joey Browner, Minnesota Viking legend, he played at USC, won MVP of that team. And when you look at that team, Ronnie Law, Dennis Smith, Jeff Fisher, it's a pretty good team. <laughs> and that got him drafted by the Vikings, 19th overall. Terrific career rocking the purple, making six Pro Bowls, three first-team All-Pros, one second team. Such a dominant force. He was named the NFL 1980s All-Decade team. He played one season in Tampa Bay to wrap up his career, but he's always a Viking. One of the 50 greatest Vikings, he was named to the Vikings 40th anniversary team and inducted into the Vikings Ring of Honor. He seems to be just on the outside of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's been really close, nominated for selection nine times, but never quite made it in. Hopefully he can. Next 47 in football, we'll talk about someone on the offensive side, tight end Chris Cooley. He was a beast at Utah State. In his senior season, he led the entire NCAA in receptions by a tight end. That led to him getting drafted third in the third round by the Reds, Washington team, sorry. <laughs> Spent his entire career in Washington as a productive tight end. As a rookie, he'd make the all-rookie team. Then the following season, he'd send a single-season reception for Washington tight ends, which would eventually get broken by Jordan Reed. But Cooley was... 
really cool in Washington. Five out of his eight best seasons at tight end with the franchise. He's the most receptions by Washington tight end. Betrayals, legend Jerry Smith in yards and touchdowns. He made two Pro Bowls. If it wasn't for injuries, he could even have a better career. He was named to the Commander's 90 greatest. He's inducted into the Utah State University Athletics Hall of Fame, a solid tight end. Uh, next 47, we'll go back to the defensive side. A cornerback, Leroy Irvin, solid collegiate career at Kansas. Got him drafted by the Rams. Spent most of his career with the Rams before playing one season with the Lions. Made four All-Pro teams, three firsts, one second. Made two Pro Bowls. One of the few players in NFL history to be named All-Pro at two positions. He was a returner and a cornerback. His returning skills were unreal. He holds a single-game record for most punt yards in a game. Uh, he scored a 75-yarder and an 85-yard touchdown on the way to 207 punt return yards. It's crazy, but he's not in any Hall of Fames of any sort. To wrap up the NFL portion, we'll give a current player a shout-out. Denver Broncos linebacker Josie Jewell. He's a stud at Iowa University. He has many accolades. Two-time second-team All-Big Ten. First-team All-Big Ten his senior season. He was also named the Butkus Fitzgerald Linebacker of the Year. The Nagurstiki Woodson Defensive Player of the Year. Jack Lambert the Player of the Year. Lot Trophy Player of the Year. You can see all unanimous All-American. He's pretty good in college. But despite that, he dropped to the fourth round of the 2018 draft where the Broncos would take him. He started as a backup, but he's worked his way into a pretty good Broncos lineup there. But we'll leave the gridiron and go to perhaps the most famous 47 in sports. Major League Baseball legendary pitcher Jack Morris. He got his start with the Tigers, the franchise he spent most of his career with. He was a very important piece of that 1984 World Series team. That season in general was great for him. He threw his only no-hitter of his career against the White Sox early in that season. And he was known as a pitcher that would go the distance, racking up 175 complete games. 154 of them with Detroit. In 10 of his 12 seasons with the Tigers, he would complete double-digit complete game totals, which is crazy. You'll never see that nowadays. People don't go the distance. And after his time in Detroit, he'd sign a one-year deal with his Minnesota Twins hometown team. Not a bad single season with the team. They'd win the AL West, make the World Series. Uh, that was also his last All-Star game nod. They beat the Braves in a seven-game series with Morris, 36 at the time, throwing 10 innings of shutout baseball, earning him World Series MVP. And after beating the Blue Jays twice on his way to the World Series win, he'd sign with the Blue Jays and win 21 games, leading the MLB in wins for the second time in his career. The Jays would ride that wave, make the World Series. Despite Morris himself not playing that well, the Blue Jays would beat the Braves and win the World Series and giving another one for Morris. In the following season, the Blue Jays would repeat as World Series champs, giving Morris three for his career. But Morris's role on that second Jays title was non-existent. He'd go 7-12 and during the regular season and not make any postseason appearances due to injuries. He played with Cleveland since Cincinnati to end his career, but what a career. His 47 retired by the Tigers. And in 2018, Morris was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame via the Baseball Modern Era Committee. He was known for his broadcasting. He was great on TV, but he received some flack with some questionable accents to talk about Shohei Otani. He gave an on-air apology, and Otani said he personally was offended, but Morris was suspended indefinitely, and he's parted ways with the Tigers broadcasting team. Sticking with baseball, next 47, also a great pitcher. I'm talking about Tom Glavin. He's a two-sport marvel at high school in Massachusetts. He was drafted by the Braves and spent most of his t career there. But he was also drafted in the fourth round by the Los Angeles Kings of the NHL. He was drafted before Hall of Famers Brett Hull 
and Luke Robitaille. That that's pretty wild. <laughs> he had a kind of a rough start to his career from '87 to '90. He'd go 33 and 40, and even had a 17 loss performance in '98 on his resume. In 91, he'd turn it around, won 20 games. It was first of three straight seasons with 20 wins and his first NL Cy Young Award. He'd win one more of his career, also with the Braves, and then he'd make 10 All-Star games, eight of them with the Braves. He'd lead the NL five different times and wins. He could hit, too, winning the Silver Slugger four times, and he was part of one of the best rotations in baseball history. He, Greg Maddox, and John Smoltz made the Braves one of the most successful teams in the 90s, which is so weird because despite that greatness, they only did win one World Series, which is pretty wild. They'd lose four different World Series, two to Jack Morris when he was with Minnesota and one in Toronto. The Braves would also get stumped by the Yankees twice. In 95, the Braves beat the Cleveland Indians at the time, and Tom Glavin won World Series MVP, his only World Series ring. He'd leave the Braves for the rivaled Mets in 2003, making two more All-Star games before returning to Atlanta for his last season. After he retired, his 47 was retired by the Braves, and he was inducted into the, base, the Braves Hall of Fame. And then in 2014, Glavin was inducted to the Baseball Hall of Fame on his first ballot. We'll stick with pitchers. Next, 47, Joaquin Anduar. Anduar signed with the Reds in 69 just for his 17th birthday, but he played in their farm system before getting moving to the Astros. Started as a reliever before moving to the starting rotation. He spent time with the Astros, making two All-Star games, then moved to St. Louis, where he was back as a starter. He was a, he played a big role in a World Series winning team that beat the Brewers in seven games in 82. He made two All-Star games as the Cardinals. His best season was in 84. Not only did he get an All-Star nod, but he led the NL in wins and won a gold glove. His last season in St. Louis, the Cardinals would take on the Kansas City Royals in the World Series. And in the seventh game of that series, it was 10-0 and out of reach, and Andahar was just to come in as he was the only pitcher left with an arm. The Cardinals had gone through seven pitches that game, and he would get ejected. He would not take it well, demolish the sink in the visitors' locker room, getting a $500 fine, which was the max they could give at the time, and he was suspended 10 games for the following season. But the offseason, he was traded to the Athletics, and they said it had nothing to do with the ejection. But then he was handed down a season-long suspension. The police say he dealt drugs at Cardinals' teammate Lonnie Smith. The suspension was reduced in anti-drug donations and community service, but yeah, he was never the same guy. He'd get inducted into the Caribbean Baseball Hall of Fame, but unfortunately in 2015 he passed away from complications with diabetes. He's 62 years old. Going to the pitcher well before my time, this 47, the 6'6 pitcher was considered one of the greatest pitchers of his era, Ewell Blackwell. He started with the Reds in 42, but from 43 to 46, he'd have to go work as a mess sergeant in the U.S. Army in Europe during the war. When he wasn't cooking, he was uh, teaching people how to play baseball over there. He'd return and make six straight All-Star games. His 47 was probably his best season, leading the NL in wins and strikeouts, throwing his only no-hitter that season. He'd move on to the Yankees, where he'd get his only World Series win when the Yankees beat the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yeah, and then he'd retire just after a few games, saying his arm hurt too much. He rested up for a year, and he'd come back, but he wasn't the same guy. He was remembered for being a towering stature of a pitcher with a unique sidearm delivery. He was in the war. Amazing. <laughs> Last pitcher we'll mention here, number 47, Lee Smith. He was selected in the second round, the 75 draft by the Cubs. Started as a starting pitcher in the minors before becoming a reliever. And he did great there. Spent most of his career there. He'd go on to play with the Red Sox, Cardinals, Yankees, Orioles, Reds, Angels. 
finishing with the Expos, but he was one of, if not the best relievers in the game, making seven All-Star games, including a stretch where he made five straight from 91 to 95. He won reliever of the year. He was the first reliever to reach the 400 save mark. He hold that record for a while until Mariano Rivera and Trevor Hoffman had him beat, but he still sits third in career saves all time of 478. He wasn't initially inducted into the Hall of Fame, but in 2019 he was voted in by the Today's Game Era Committee. So now you can find Lee Smith's bust in Cooperstown. Oh, I got another picture here. Uh, Dominican Republic's own Johnny Cueto. He's still a free agent, not retired, but uh, his last play was with the Marlins. He got to start with the Reds, but he played with the Royals, Giants, and White Sox before like uh, I said with the Marlins. With the Reds, he battled injuries a bit, but then in 2014, he'd lead the NL in strikeouts on the way to his first All-Star game. He get traded to the Royals, where he was amazing, part of that World Series winning team in 2015 that beat the Mets. He became a free agent, signed a big deal with the Giants, and he thrived that first season, making another All-Star game, but injuries would return, and he was not the same guy. He's known for one of his the most unique pitching motions you'll ever see. Looks like he's hitting you with a shimmy before he throws it. Some call it illegal, but I think it looks like a good shimmy. But, uh, yeah, we'll see if he gets picked up by anybody going into the next season. We'll leave the very popular diamond for the hockey rink. First, number 47, I'll mention, Russian star Alexander Radulov. He was a beast in the Q- QMJHL, lighting it up with uh, Quebec Ramparts, helping them win the Memorial Cup. He wore 22 there, which is retired, but when he came in the NHL with the Nashville Preds, he wore the 47. He's a pretty good player with the team, and then he surprised the team by signing with the KHL while under contract with the Preds. And after some good seasons there, he'd return to Nashville and help them get to the playoffs. After that season, the Preds were like, we don't want you. You go back to the KHL, have some good years, come back, play for Montreal. Had a great season. Couldn't stay with them, so we went to the Stars, helped get them to the 2020 Stanley Cup Finals, but lost to the Lightning. The following season was injury-filled, and once his contract ran up, yep, you bet, right back to Russia. He's back in the KHL where he's still playing today. Two other 47s that come to mind, Canadian NHL defenseman Marc-Andre Bergeron. He had a 10-year career playing with the Oilers, Islanders, Ducks, Wild Canadians, Lightning, and Hurricanes. He would then wrap it up overseas in Switzerland. The last NHL mention, Tory Krug, he went to Michigan State to play hockey. Productive defenseman in college, however, he was undrafted, and then uh, the Bruins would sign him and helped him out right away, earning all NHL rookie teams, spending nine years in Boston as a consistent player, even becoming the first Boston's Bruins to lead the record for... Sorry, the first Boston Bruins player to record four points in the Stanley Cup Finals game. He did that in the 2019 Stanley Cup to the Blues. The Blues ended up winning the Cup, and after the season, Krug would join the Blues, signing a seven-year deal to join the club where he still is today. My last 47 mention comes from the footy pitch, England's own Phil Foden. Phil Foden. He's been playing for England's Manchester City since he was part of their youth system as a youngster. He's emerged as a mainstay in the lineup. He's progressed in his career. Tons of honors with Man City. He's been part of five EPL titles, two FA Cups, four EFL Cups, two Community Shields, a Champions League, Super Cup, a FIFA Club World Cup. He also won uh, players, uh, Young Player of the Year twice. Not just a goal scorer, he sets up lots of goals. Regular fixture at a top-level club at the age of 23, something special. And like I said, he's suited up for England, and he's represented the three lines at the highest level, scoring four goals for England, including one uh, against Wales in the 2022 World Cup. So look for his numbers that continue to climb. 
So that was the Jersey segment. Now we go to the crazy conference championship games this weekend had. The Chiefs and Ravens, everybody was looking forward to this one. Jackson would get the ball first with the Ravens. Three and out, not ideal. Patrick Mahomes and Kelsey showed everyone that's not their first radio. Going forward on fourth down, picking it up. Mahomes finding Kelsey. They cap it off with Mahomes finding Kelsey in the end zone. 17th connection between them on that as they add to that historic record. Um, the game had to be stopped for a short period. You had a drone flying by. It was a brief stop stoppage, but you were like, what the heck? <laughs> Ravens looked a lot better second possession. Lamar Jackson picked up some first downs with his legs. Throw a dart to Zay Flowers for an amazing catch in the end zone to tie it up. Chiefs on their second possession, uh, just, success, just as successful, moved right down the field, capped off a nine-minute drive with a Pacheco touchdown. Ravens were looking to answer, but Lamar was strip-sacked by Charles Omenihu, who would eventually have to leave the game later. But this uh, fumble caused by him gave Mahomes a great field position. Uh, he'd hit Kelsey on another pass with that. Travis Kelsey would go ahead of Jerry Rice for most postseason, most postseason pass receptions. That's crazy. And the Chiefs were looking to increase their lead. They ended up with a field goal and uh, go from there. But it would be a pretty cool place where, uh, or sorry, not on that possession. They'd go for it on fourth down and get stalled. So then the Ravens would be like, okay, let's go. And Lamar's tap pass would get tipped right in the air. He'd catch it, catch his own pass, go 13 yards for the first down. Amazing play. Drive would end there. And then KC would kick the field goal before half. Then it was 17-7. So... It was still a pretty good game here. In the third quarter, Jackson would find Flowers, put him deep in the territory. He'd get called for a taunting. I mean, it was letter of the law, but it didn't look that bad. I mean, come on. And then uh, that was near the end of the third quarter. First play of the fourth quarter, Jackson found Flowers again. And as he dove to broke the plane, he fumbled the ball into the end zone. Chiefs recover, touchback, one of the biggest swings in sports. It's always risky diving for it, but man, what a buzz at Killington. Instead of a three-point game, it stays at 10, and Kansas City got the ball back. The Ravens' defense stepped up in the second half, though. They were getting the ball back for Jackson, and they were looking to score again, and then Jackson would force it in the triple coverage into the end zone. It would be picked. It was brutal. Later on, the Ravens would get a field goal to make it a seven-point game with just over two minutes left. You were worried Mahomes is going to run the clock out, and he was just doing that. The Ravens would get penalties, and then on a big play, Mahomes would find Marquez Valdez-Scantling on a deep ball, only a second catch of the game. But that was it. That was the clincher, knocking the number one team in the AOCO of the playoffs. It, that fumble by Flowers at the end zone really swung the game. It felt like the Ravens were coming back, but hey... This is what the Chiefs do. They were feeling it all first half. They did what they needed to do in the second half to win. This is what Kansas City does. They just go to Super Bowls. Defending champs are going back for the fourth time in five years, trying to become the first team to go back-to-back since the 2003 and 2004 New England Patriots. Say what you want about Mahomes, yo. He's one of the best quarterbacks. He is the best quarterback in the league right now. NFC Championship game, how are you going to follow that up? Dan Campbell and his Lions were looking to make it to the Super Bowl for the first time ever in Lions franchise history. The 49ers, my pick at the beginning of the season to win, just saying. But they were hoping to get back there and finally win one in the Shanahan era. I mean, the 49ers were like, you know what, we'll defer. We don't need to give it to the Lions. Less than two minutes, they went down the field and scored. Jamison Williams on an end around, breaking tackles to score. 
Then the Lions would force a field goal attempt by the 49ers. Moody would miss it. Lions would go right down the field. Montgomery would run it in. It was suddenly 14-0. And then the 49ers were like, oh, yeah, we can run the ball too. Letting Christian McCaffrey get some runs. He'd break off a long one. Stiff arm and C.J. Gardner-Johnson. It was nice. They'd cap that drive off with another powerful run to make it 14-7. Then when the 49ers would punt again, or they would, 49ers would force a punt, and Purdy would have his hand hit as he threw. Interception by Rodriguez. He was only in the game after Barnes picked up an injury for the Lions. The Lions would score off that when Jameer Gibbs would get the ball and run it into the end zone, breaking tackles. for. So, yeah, the Lions were up 21-7. It was crazy. And the 49ers looked like they had a chance to stop the Lions just before halftime. The Lions just kept picking up first downs, run the clock all the way down to 10 seconds before hitting a field goal. Yeah, the Lions led 24-7 at halftime. Just for halftime, you could hear chants of Jared Goff coming from the crowd. Lions were feeling themselves. Coming in the second half, the 49ers would get the ball. They'd get a field goal, make it 24-10. They needed a big play, and they got a very weird one. A deep ball by Brock Purdy would get ricocheted off Kendall Vildorer. His hand, his face mask, pop up in the air, where Brandon Ayuk would make an amazing catch. A few, a few plays later, Purdy would find Ayuk again and in the end zone. Suddenly it's 24-17. Lions collar is getting a little tight. On the very next offensive play by the Lions, Jameer Gibbs would fumble the ball. It would get ripped out of his arms. And the 49ers would recover. Great field position. Brock Purdy would see Lane and scamper inside the 10 where Christian McCaffrey would punch it in. And we'd have a tie game at 24 49ers would go down the field. Purdy would take a late shot. No roughing the passer call. Even the announcers were like, WTF, mate. But they'd get a field goal when they were leading 27-24. The Lions looked to answer. It was fourth and three. Dan Campbell, they had a chance kicked field goal tied up. But he said, you know what? We're going to go for it. And they did not get it. I mean, that mentality got them here, but it's the playoffs. you got to take the points. So the 49ers took advantage of that turnover, running it down the throats between McCaffrey and Brock Purdy scampering. They get the ball within the five-yard line. That last run to set that up, McCaffrey landed like right on his head. Did not look good. He had to come out of the game. But, hey, it's put Elijah Mitchell in. He punches it in. Suddenly it's a two-possession game because you didn't take the field goal. But with under a minute to go, the Lions would score. On fourth down, Goff would find Jamison, Wilson, Jamison Williams in the back of the end zone. Made it a three-point game, but with only two timeouts, they'd need an onside kick. And it looked close, but it wouldn't have counted anyway. It was illegal touching. They touched it before it went to 10 yards. So the 49ers, when an absolute thriller, like I said, down 24-7 and half, scored 27 unanswered to break the hearts of the Lions fans. Detroit looked so good in the first half, you know, waving goodbye to everyone. You had Eminem flipping off people in the crowd, but... They collapse, man. You can't just put it on a few plays with questionable decisions. That fourth down, man, you got to take the points there, Dan Campbell. He still stands by it, but I think you got to go that. Reynolds, Reynolds had some bad drops in this one for the Lions at crucial times. So this game could have gone another way. But, hey, that's how I felt about my Packers the week before. It's football. This, this happens. And everyone hating on Brock Purdy. Maybe... Maybe back up a bit. He wins these games. Like, what else do you want from the guy? So, yeah, the Lions remain in that group of four that have never played in the Super Bowl, sticking with Cleveland, Houston, and Jacksonville. So, yikes. 49ers go to their second Super Bowl in five years. 
Last time they played in the big game, 2020 against the Kansas City Chiefs. So, a little rematch action. We'll see what can happen. Looking forward to that one. It's not next week, but it's the week upcoming. The week after, sorry. Before leaving the NFL, let's maybe talk some coach hirings. I forgot to mention it last episode, but the Raiders were doing the right thing, in my opinion, sticking with Antonio Pierce, the interim coach, is now the head coach. It was also announced the Raiders hired Tom Telesco as their new general manager. He was the GM of the Chargers the last 11 seasons running their personnel department. Uh, the Titans announced they'd signed former Cincinnati Bengals offensive coordinator Brian Callahan as their new coach. He's a son of former Raiders head coach Bill Callahan. Panthers hired their GM finally. Dan Morgan was promoted from within. He'd been the assistant GM from 2021 to 2023. He was at the Bills prior to that job. And uh, they went from there to their next coach, Tampa Bay Bucks offensive coordinator David Canals, taking the position. The 42-year-old, a pretty successful campaign last year with Baker Mayfield, a quarterback. And he's got familiarity with Dan Gordon. They both worked together in Seattle from 2010 to 2017. My Packers announced they let go defensive coordinator Joe Barry. He spent the last three seasons with the Packers as defensive play caller, and they were under scrutiny a lot this year. And although they turned around the second half of the season, I guess it wasn't enough to keep the job. We'll see who they get with next. The Chargers announced Jim Harbaugh called it on this show. I said New England would be a wild card, but I figured he'd be going to L.A. And Jim Harbaugh, fresh off a national championship at Michigan, will be the new coach of the Chargers. The job that finally pulled him back to the NFL. A day after leaving the Dolphins, Vic Fangio joined the Philadelphia Eagles. He'll be the new defensive coordinator. He spent one year running the Dolphins after coaching the Broncos for three seasons. And it hasn't been 100% official, but a lot of sources are saying Kellen Moore will soon be the new Eagles offensive coordinator. He was the coordinator of the Cowboys before moving to the Chargers, and now with Harbaugh in L.A., I'm... It's looking like Moore is leading, leaving the Philly. I don't want to say it's 100%, but it's looking like he'll be the new offensive coordinator there. Also, reports are saying New England Patriots are going to promote from within, make defensive line coach Demarcus Covington the new defensive coordinator for new head coach Jared Mayo. Falcons, they found their new head coach, Raheem Morris. He was hired for the job. He leaves the L.A. Rams after leading their defense the last few seasons. He's a defensive mastermind. He's been a head coach once, way back in 2009 for a few seasons, but he went back to working coordinator, and I think he's a little more prepared now. And he's got, I think he can do more with this team, and he's bringing someone with him. Uh, he's taken also Zach Robinson to be the offensive coordinator for the Falcons. So bringing the L.A. to the East Coast here. And the Bears hired Eric Washington as their new defensive coordinator. He was working with the Bills prior. Bills' offense will be run by former Seahawks offense coordinator Shane Waldron. And hey, shout out to former Saskatchewan Rough Rider and Grey Cup winner Kerry Joseph. He's taken over as quarterback's coach for the Bears. And the last bit of NFL news, former LSU and current New England wide receiver Kayshawn Boot has been arrested and charged with computer fraud and gambling prohibited for persons under 21. He was booked into the East Baton Rouge, or Baton Rouge Parish Jail and was released after posting 600000 bond. He was allegedly making wagers under an alias account. It was believed he made over 8,900 wagers. At least 17 were placed on college football with at least six of those on LSU football. Said the Patriots are aware and he's cooperating with police, and it's unclear what will happen in the former six-round pick. Uh, and it was announced WWE Raw leaving linear TV for the first time since debuting in '93. It's jumping on the Netflix train. Ten-year deal valued at more than five billion dollars. It'll make its debut on Netflix in 2025. 
a massive deal and a massive change in perhaps the way we view sports going forward. Later in the week, more huge news for the WWE and not good. This kind of overshadows everything else. Vince McMahon resigning from his role at TKO a day after an ex-employee's lawsuit for sexual assault and trafficking. Man, I read some of the details on this. They're messed up. I'd say check it out, but just giving you a heads up, it's fucked. From forcing a woman to participate in sexual acts with other WWE talent, and one instance in which this poor woman was defecated on and told to continue without cleaning up. The whole thing literally stinks. And I'm glad Vince McMahon will be gone. This is, like, that's fucked. Well, from one fuck story to another, the NHL, well, not all in the NHL, but involving players in the NHL, massive news in the hockey world. Five players from Canada's 2018 World Juniors team have been directed to report to the police in London, Ontario, to face charges of sexual assault. This was reported by the Globe and Mail. And you could kind of tell who the players were by who were taking leaves of absence from the teams. And although it hasn't been any official announcement, it's looking like the five players are Michael McLeod and Cal Foote and the New Jersey Devils, Carter Hart of the Philadelphia Flyers, Dylan Dubé of the Flames, Alex Formanson, who now plays in Switzerland. And Formanson actually turned himself into the London, into London police Sunday morning, so we'll see what happens over the next few days. Terrible black eye on Canadian hockey, and hockey in general. And to the people defending these guys nonstop already, like, chill out. There's, there's a real victim here. Let's, let's have some compassion. Going to the actual hockey on the ice, the Oilers, man, 16 games in a row now. That feels weird to say. That's second all-time, tying them with the 2016-17 Blue Jackets. A lot of people didn't know that one. <laughs> but this team is a fine-tuned machine right now. They thumped the Jackets, Blackhawks, and Preds since the last episode. And the only thing that can slow this team down is the All-Star game break. The Oilers' next game isn't until after All-Star weekend against the Golden Knights where they'll have a chance to... Tie the Penguins for the longest record, but uh, there are still games leading up to the All-Star game. The fun events take place this weekend, but they start up on Thursday when the captains pick their teams, and very unique group for sure. Matthews is Toronto's, Austin Matthews is captain, Morgan Riley's as assistant, celebrity captain Justin Bieber, Team McDavid, Connor McDavid with Leon Dreisaitl, and Will Arnett as celebrity captain, shout out Bojack Horseman. Uh, with uh, Will Arnett. Uh, yeah, Team Hughes will be Devils Jack Hughes with his brother Quinn Hughes of Michael Bublé. With Captain and Team McKinnon will be Nathan McKinnon and Kale McCarr with Tate McRae as a celebrity captain. With all that all-star break portion of the season, I mentioned how hot the Oilers are, and they're just third in the Pacific after their disastrous start. The Canucks lead in the Western Conference with 71 points. Winnipeg lead in the Central Division for a while, but three straight losses have them sitting third now behind Colorado and Dallas. In the East, uh, the Bruins have really been the cream of the crop. Behind them, it's been a close race all season. Lots of teams involved. Right now, the hot and cold Florida Panthers are hot again. Four-game winning streak for them. My Flyers have been really struggling lately. Five straight. Losing Carter Hart with all that. That's That whole disaster is not helping. So our point leaders at the All-Star... Well, not quite there, but... At the episode leading into the All-Star break, these are our point leaders. Tampa Bay's Nikita Kucherov at 85. Him and Colorado's Nathan McKinnon keep changing spots. He's got a one-point lead on him. Toronto's Austin Matthews still leading the league in goals. First player to hit 40 this season. 
Florida Sam Reinhardt's just three behind him at 37. Lots of injuries to goaltenders this season. Aiden Hill still leads a lot of them, but he's only played 17 games. So we'll go with tenders with at least 20 games. Connor Hellebuck leading in goals against average from with the Jets. Boston's Jeremy Swayman leading in save percentage. Should be some exciting moments in the All-Star weekend, so check it out. We'll go to footy now. We had AFCON, Cup of Nations. We had the group play wrap-up. Equatorial Guinea, they thrashed host Ivory Coast to win the Group A. Nigeria beat Guinea-Bissau 1-0 with an own goal to get them second in the group. Ivory Coast finished third. Chance they could go on, but it wasn't looking good for them. In Group B, Cape Verde took on a Salah-less Egypt team, and after going down a goal, Egypt tied it up. They looked poised to win, but Cape Verde would equalize, and then the game ended 2-2, so Cape Verde won the group. Ghana needed to beat Mozambique to secure second, and two penalties scored by Jordan Ayew had Ghana sent pretty good. But then a stoppage time penalty by Mozambique made it nervous, and then three minutes later, so two goals in stoppage time ended that in a draw. So Cape Verde won the group, and that those crazy endings led to Egypt moving on and Ghana needing help, but it wasn't looking good for them. In Group C, Senegal beat Guinea 2-0 to stay undefeated and won the group. The other match had more, gram- more drama. Cameroon took the lead in the 56th minute. Gambia tied it up in the 72nd, and then 13 minutes later took the lead. Then an 87th minute own goal would put Cameroon ahead for good. Cameroon win was huge as they jumped the second place of the group and they advanced while Guinea sat back and waited to see if they'd advance. Because if you're in third position, there was enough room for them to qualify if you had enough points. In Group D, Angola beat Burkina Faso to clinch the division. Mauritania beat Algeria 1-0 to add to Algeria's disaster tournament. And despite their loss, Burkina Faso advanced to the knockout station, or knockout stages. Disappointment for Algeria as they were the favorites to win the group and they'd finished with two draws on a loss. And only hours after the game, the manager was let go from his position. Definitely fell short of expectations. In Group E, uh, all those games would finish scoreless to end, so Mali won the group. South Africa squeaked in in the second position, and N- Namibia looked like they'd go on from the third spot. Group F, Morocco's 1-0 win over Zambia clinched the group for them. Ten- Tanzania and Congo would play to a scoreless draw, and Congo would clinch the second spot. Zambia sitting in the third spot hoping for luck. And after all that crazy group stage, we'd move to the knockout stages. The two teams that finished third in their group that wouldn't advance were Ghana and Zambia. The rest would. And Angola would shut out Namibia 3-0, where both teams went down a man, so Angola would punch their ticket to the quarterfinals. Nigeria shut out Cameroon 2-0, the sent them on to the next round. Atalanta's Adamola Lookman scored a brace to set them on. In the Battle of Guineas, you had Equatorial Guinea, who had won Group A, taking on Guinea, who barely advanced. And this game was tied throughout. In the 55th minute, things changed dramatically. Federico Bicaro was given a direct red card and was dismissed from the match. So Equatorial Guinea was a man down. And Guinea did what they could to try to get in it. Bio would get a perfect header very late in the game. In the 98th minute, with basically the last touch, Guinea advanced to the corner finals. You could see the tears for Equatorial Guinea. They felt this was their tournament. They were feeling it all tournament. And they go out like that. And that's the way sports go. You had Egypt taking on the Congo without Mo Salah, who got injured earlier in this tournament. It was all tied up at one in the first half. No goals would happen. We'd go to penalties, and Congo would outlast Egypt 8-7 and advance the quarterfinals. Amazing win for them. 
There'll be big games on Monday and Tuesday to wrap up the round of 16. It's very interesting with that Senegal-Ivory Coast game. After Ivory Coast, it's disappointing last game in group play. They fired their manager, but they still managed to qualify from that spot. So they'll have a new manager going into that knockout game. Very wild. You don't see someone getting fired mid-tournament while staying in the tournament. Very interesting. The Carabao Cup semis went down. You had the second legs there. Chelsea was hosting Middlesbrough. They were down 1-0. No fear for Chelsea. They ended up crushing them, winning 6-2 on aggregate. The other semifinal, it was a little closer. Fulham and Liverpool. Liverpool had a 2-1 lead going in. This game finished 1-1, so Liverpool finished 3-2 on aggregate. Liverpool faces Chelsea in the Carabao Cup final at Wembley, taking place Sunday, February 25th. Each of those teams looking to add some hardware to the trophy case. During the week as well, we had Copa del Rey. We had the quarterfinals. Quick goal to start the game really set up Real Sociedad. A second goal gave them a big enough cushion to hold off Celta Vigo and win 2-1, advancing to the semis. Mallorca jumped out to a quick 3-0 lead over surprise Girona. Canadian Kyle Lahren was in on the score and getting a nice goal. Girona made a dramatic comeback but came up short as Mallorca stunned Girona, who's having an absolute fantastic season. They stunned them 3-2 as Mallorca moves on. Athletic Bilbao and Barcelona probably had the game of the quarterfinals. Just seconds into the game, Bilbao would take the lead. Then Barcelona would equalize in the 26th minute with Lewandowski, and then six minutes later, they'd go ahead. So they led at halftime, and then not even four minutes into the second half, Bilbao would equal again. This game would need extra time, and in extra time, Inaki Williams would put Athletic Bilbao ahead. He hopped on a plane after Ghana was eliminated from AFCON, landing just in time to score the go-ahead goal. They'd add another goal and win 4-2. Barcelona out of the Copa del Rey as Athletic Bilbao moves on. The last quarterfinal was between Atletico Madrid and Sevilla, and there was some sadness for the kickoff. It was announced that three Sevilla fans died in a road accident on the way to the match. So they paid some tribute wearing black armbands, and a minute silence was observed before the kickoff. Once the game commenced, the 79th-minute goal by Memphis Depay would put Atletico ahead, and they'd win 1-0, holding on and going on to the semifinals. They were played in two legs, much like the Carabao Cup semifinals. The first legs go down during the midweek, February 6th and 7th. Mallorca and Real Sociedad and Atletico Madrid and Athletic Bilbao. The second legs of those games will go a few weeks later on the 27th and 28th. FA Cup, there was no Premier League this weekend, so it was fourth round FA Cup, but massive news before the games. Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp announced this will be his last year at the club with Liverpool. A huge loss to Liverpool. This I didn't see this coming. This came kind of out of nowhere. So this is huge. This is one of the biggest jobs in England. It'll be a bummer to have him go. He's such a great personality. He's good for Liverpool. He's good for the Premier League. It'll be a bummer to see him go. Some big matches in the fourth round, the FA Cup. You had Bournemouth annihilating Swansea 5-0. Man City needed a late controversial excuse me, goal by Nathan Ake to beat Tottenham. Brighton had smashed Sheffield United. Leicester City beat Birmingham. Newcastle shut out Fulham. Luton Town needed a stoppage time winner to beat Everton. Liverton, or Liverpool, sorry, destroyed Norwich City. Wolves, uh, their match against West Midland rivals West Brom had to be stopped for a bit while security dealt with dangerous and an inexcusable crowd trouble. One guy looked bloodied up. His face was already looked like Red Skull. It's crazy if you see any pictures from that. 
but uh, Wolves would hold on once game once the game resumed. Manchester United were locked up at two in the second half against League Two side Newport County. Then goals by Anthony and Rasmus Holland proved to be the difference. Anthony celebrated his tap in like he scored the winner in a World Cup, but he's had a tough year for Man U, and hey, a win's a win. Ipswich Town, they're having a great run in the championship. They lost to Maidstone United 2-1. Maidstone United plays in the National League South. That is a division lower than where Wrexham was when they were purchased by Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhaney. That's a crazy upset. And hey, speaking of Wrexham, they wrap up the fourth round with a match against the championship side Blackburn Rovers Monday, January 29th, today. And there were some draws that will require some replays. Coventry versus Sheffield Wednesday. Plymouth Argyle Leeds United. Nottingham Forest and Bristol City and Aston Villa and Chelsea. They'll face off not this week, but the week after. Some actual league play went on, enough of these Cups plays. You had uh, big matches in Germany in the Bundesliga. There was a makeup game midweek where Bayern Munich beat Union Berlin to make up for that Snowden game earlier in the season. Mario Goetze would score the lone goal in Frankfurt's win over Mainz to start the weekend matches. Stuttgart bounced back from a tough loss last week to thump Leipzig 5-2 at home. Dominated the game and Dennis Undov scored a hat-trick in the win. Werder Bremen won at home over Freiburg. Bayern Munich and Augsburg put on a show in the Bavarian Derby. Fantastic goal, but hey, another Canadian, Alfonso Davis, put Bayern up 2-0. And just into the second half, Augsburg would get one back, but Harry Kane would answer to keep it a two-goal difference. Then with 3-1 and things getting late, it got crazy. Germany or Bayern Munich would give up a penalty, and Neuer would make a huge save, but Bayern Munich would give up another penalty, and this time Demirovic would score his second of the game, made it 3-2 and made it a nervy ending, but Bayern held on for the big win. Union Berlin bounced back, and they got a much-needed win over Darmstadt. After going just six minutes in, Dortmund was tied with Bochum after a terrible own goal tied it up, but Volker would get two more goals for Dortmund to complete his track, his hat trick, and give Dortmund a 3-1 win. They've been feeling it lately. Other fixtures ended in draw and ended in draws, with Leverkusen remaining undefeated on their magic season after a scoreless draw with Monchen Gladbach. Wolfsburg and Colm tied at one, and it was a 1-1 draw in a match that had some Heim-on-Heim crime, with Hoffenheim and Heidenheim splitting the point. My wife Caitlin came up with that Heim-on-Heim crime. That was was good. I liked that one. Leverkusen continued to lead the Bundesliga with their historic season, like I said. They're still unbeaten on the area. They haven't lost. They only have a two-point lead over second-place Bayern Munich, and there's a Larger gap between the next few teams. Stuttgart sit in in third, and Dortmund have worked their way back up to fourth. Three points ahead of Leipzig. They've lost three in a row, and they've kind of dropped out of the Champions League spots. I did mention we're back in league play, but there will be some German domestic cup play this midweek. The Pokal Cup quarterfinals continue. All second division sides, FC St. Pauli takes on Dusseldorf, and Hertha takes on FCK. I had to double-check that. It's FCK. But uh, the following quarterfinals will go on the following week. Serie A in Italy, you had everything going there. Torino's two goals in the first half were enough to hold off Cagliari in their 2-1 win. Atalanta followed suit and won 2-0 over Udinese. Genoa was down a goal to Lecce, but two second-half goals six minutes apart were enough for Genoa to come back and win. Monza got a 1-0 home win over Sassuolo, and Inter Milan got an early goal from Latoura Martinez, which would be the difference maker as they beat Inter beat Fiorentina. The other matches ended in draws. Juventus went a man down early, but were able to snag a lead over Empoli. 
But in the 70th minute, Baldanzi would equalize and secure a huge point for Ampoli that would really hurt Juventus in a title race. And after going a goal down, AC Milan looked poised to secure a home win. Following two goals by Englishman Ruben Loftus-Cheek, but a stoppage time equalizer by Bologna's Riccardo Orsolini spoiled the party and it was 2-2. Verona and Frosinone drew 1-1 in Lazio and Napoli. They played to a scoreless draw. Match day 22 wraps up on Monday where Salernitana hosts Roma. Next episode, I'll jump back in the table and let you know where uh, the Italian league sits once teams are a little more even here in La Liga. Some wild ones on the Spanish top flight. Alaves spanked Almeria 3-0 to start the weekend. Real Madrid won a goal down to Las Palmas, but uh, two second-half goals by Vinicius Jr. and Chuchimeni gave Real Madrid the comeback win. Another close one by Real Madrid where they didn't look their best, but they still managed to get the three points. I mean, a win's a win, but they got to step their game up. One of the craziest games of the weekend was Barcelona and Villarreal. Villarreal would go up 2-0 after 54 minutes, and the home side stormed back. In 11 minutes, Barca would get goals by Gundogan, Pedri, and an own goal by Eric Bailly into his own net, and this crowd was rocking. They were up 3-2. In the 84th minute, Guedes would tie it up, and uh, you'd be going in the stoppage time. Villarreal would get two stoppage time goals within three minutes to win 5-3. A thrilling match. And that match must have been the last straw for Barcelona manager Xavi. He announced after the game he won't be returning next season as manager. Huge news. So two of the biggest jobs in the world will be available this summer. Liverpool and Barcelona. That's crazy. Real Betis beat Mallorca 1-0 and Girona beat Celta Vigo with the same scoreline. Other fixtures ended in draws, scoreless draw between Real Sociedad and Rio Vallecano, Cadiz Athletic Bilbao, Sevilla and Osasuna finished 1-1. The Sevilla faithful honored the three fans that had passed away early in the week before that Sevilla's Copa del Rey match I mentioned earlier. Getafe take on Granada on Monday to wrap up the match day. There'll be some make-up games midweek to make up for some postponed games. And uh, I'll revisit the table like the Serie A after next episode once we get things a little more even. In France, after a week off from league room play, the top division returned. Wild start, Rennes went up 3-0 in the first half and were able to withstand a Lyon comeback to win 3-2. Nice needed a late penalty to knock off Metz. Lons went on the road to beat Toulouse. The other fixtures all ended in draws. Marseille and Monaco played to a thrilling 2-2 result. Monaco playing a man down most of the match and two men down to end the match. Lille dominated possession despite going a man down late, but they couldn't muster a goal and finished a scoreless draw with Montpellier. Lorient looked like they were going to pick up a rare win after going up 3-2 in the 92nd minute. Not even two minutes later, Le Havre would tie it up and the game would end 3-3. One of the biggest shocks of the weekend, Paris Saint-Germain, would were up 2-0 just before halftime and looked to be on their way, but Brestois would storm back and get two goals of their own, splitting the point. So, yeah, tough go for PSG. They expected to win that one. Looking at the league on table, PSG still up, though. They have a pretty big lead. Six-point lead over second-place Nice. Brestois is in second with Monaco rounding out the top four. Lille sits two back of Monaco for that fourth spot. Leaving the footy world to the tennis world, our first tennis Grand Slam of the year featured some wild semifinals. I expected Novak Djokovic to make the final and win, but he was knocked out in the semis by Yannick Sinner in four cents. Djokovic was 20-0 in the semifinals or finals at the Aussie Open until that loss. Sinner was the first player to beat Novak at the Aussie Open in six years. True upset. 
the other semifinal at German, Alexander Zverev, up two sets to none over Daniil Medvedev, but the Russian won three straight to come back and win. And uh, I wonder if that comeback maybe tired Medvedev out a bit. He was up two sets to none over Yannick Sinner, but then the magical comeback started. Sinner would, would come back from two sets down to win three sets and win his first Grand Slam. Amazing run for the 22-year-old as he won the Aussie Open. For Medvedev, another tough end to a great tournament. He was up two sets before losing the center, and at the 2022 Aussie Open, Medvedev was up two sets before losing the Rafael Nadal. He also made an Aussie final in 2021, but lost three sets to Djokovic. Some really close calls for Medvedev, but he just can't get that Aussie Open. On the women's side, you had some drama as well. What a final between Arena Sabalenka and Coco Gauff. The first set could have gone either way, but last year's champ, Sabalenka, held on to cruise in the second set and after winning the first and take the win. The other semifinal, Zhang beat Ukrainian Yastrevska in straight sets to advance to the finals. The women's final was not as close as the men. Sabalenka won 6-3, 6-2 in straight sets, crushing Zhang and winning her second straight Australian Open, her second major of her career. I know it's not F1 season yet, even though they announced next month the show's coming back to Netflix, new season. But some F1 news, AlphaTauri changing their name for the upcoming season. This is a weird one. Their new name is the Visa Cash App RB. Not commercial sounding at all. Other F1 news was Charles Leclerc signing a contract extension to stay with Ferrari for several more seasons, it's reported. And in golf, amateur golfer that won the American Express PGA Tour, not this weekend, but the weekend before, Nick Dunlap has decided to turn pro. He made the announcement at the Alabama Capus four days after becoming the first amateur to win a PGA Tour event since Phil Mickelson did it in 91. That win gave him a tour card through 2026 and immediate exemption into all remaining events. We talk about a life-changing event for the college sophomore. Quick college basketball stuff, lots of good stuff in hoops. I'll just mention some quick ones. Huge buzzer beater in the Pac-12. Oregon State Jordan, Oregon State's Jordan Pope capped off a 31-point performance with a buzzer-beating three to take down Arizona. Auburn, they've been having a good season. They suffered two straight losses, which should take them out of the top ten. Oklahoma, another ranked team, losing two straight in the Pac-12. UNC stayed undefeated in the ACC with a big win over Florida State. Colorado State's had a good season, but they lost two straight in conference play, so you can expect them to drop out of the top 25. UConn looked really good, looking like the best team in the nation in their win. Purdue's big Canadian, Zach Eady, joined the 2,000-point, 1,000-rebound Big Ten club in their win over Rutgers. A fantastic Big 12 game going between TCU and Baylor. The triple overtime, it was awesome, and then suddenly the TSM Plus feed just went out. I don't know if it's because it went to triple overtime and it was affecting schedule, but talking about a buzz killing tonight, I had to check updates on my phone to see who won. Boo, boo hiss. But uh, I see UConn staying at number one with Purdue and UNC right behind them. The women's game, the biggest game of the week, was obviously that big SEC matchup between Kim Mulkey's LSU and Dawn Staley's South Carolina. Great game, back and forth, and the Bayou crowd was really getting into it, letting the undefeated Gamecocks hear it. Back and forth game, LSU looked like they might take it. In the fourth quarter, they had a lead, and and then Angel Reese would foul out. It's kind of sparked South Carolina, and they'd come back and win. A huge comeback victory. They stay undefeated. After the game, reporters asked Dawn Staley about the raucous crowd. She said, oh, I think they like me. They were calling me boo all game. I know it's cheesy, but I kind of love it. 
some weird ones for a tough Notre Dame team. They lose in the ACC against Syracuse, but they bounce back and obliterate UConn in non-conference play. Notre Dame freshman Hannah Hildalgo scored 34 points in that big win. She's amazing. If you haven't seen her play, check it out. Speaking of amazing, Caitlin Clark continued her play, going for 38 points, 10 boards, and 6 dimes, and a win over Nebraska. And it was a good good time for the state of Washington this weekend. University of Washington beat USC, and Washington State upset UCLA. Colorado continues to look like a legit threat this season, while Utah continues to play some up-and-down ball. Pac-12, really good ball out there. But best team is South Carolina right now. They're undefeated. They'll be at number one. UCLA's, like, UCLA's loss should have them dropping a little bit. And I see Colorado and Kansas State kind of slithering up there. But for this short, I was wondering, where do I go for this? But I thought, hey, you know, school's in full swing since the Christmas break last month. It had me thinking to this time when the entire grade 12 class would go on this trip to the university to get a tour and see what you wanted to do after high school. I had my head, I'd be a broadcaster, yo. I already knew what I was doing. Well, I guess I'm not doing that. I have a podcast. I'm a podcaster. (laughs) That's something, right? But anywho, back to that story. This mentality and a few other bros were like, we ain't going here. So we ditched. There was a whole schedule. We're like, okay, in this one, we all bounce. We just started rolling the city, you know. I had a patchy beard, used it to my advantage, and pulled us a six-pack. Damn! So we wandered the streets drinking beer instead of being at the university touring, thinking of our future. In hindsight, it probably wasn't good, but, you know, it was fun. And then we returned to finish off our schedule there, you know, with having one beer in you in the high school at fucking Rush. You're like, whoa, man, this is crazy. We're badass. And then as we were getting back to Warman, the teachers were like, hey, there was an incident, and we'll need to see some students. And I was like, fuck, they got us. We've been busted. Starting to feel so busted. But I guess before the day started, some people got a little high, a little schmooky schmooky. One guy got super paranoid and blew everyone's cover. So they were the culprits. The smokers, not the beer drinkers. So that was a relief. I mean, brutal for those who got busted, but we were all good. I didn't attach any names of the story, but I, I know the people that were there, and if they listen, they'll be like, hey, that's, I do that. But <clears throat> anyway, that's episode 47 in the books, guys. We're cruising. Fun week of sports to look forward to. Uh, hopefully you get to enjoy it. You're like, where's the NBA? No worries. Head to my page. I do NBA recaps every week with stuff that doesn't fit into this podcast because, yeah, it gets long, son. <laughs> but anyway... That's, uh, yeah, episode 47 in the book. Shoot, shoot, Another one. Shoot, Thanks again for tuning in, guys. Shoot, shoot, shoot.